Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. But um, we're in Romans chapter 3 today, and Paul's beginning to wrap up his presentation, basically, of the guilt of all mankind. Remember that started in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, um, where he begins to condemn or show the condemnation of the person who's never heard the Word of God. They have the revelation of God in nature. They can see God in creation. He talks about the person who has a moral conscience. And he says, by the very fact that you have a moral conscience, it shows you're morally culpable. You're a sinner. Then he talks to the Jew and says, you think you're better because you... uh, you're a Jew and you're part of God's people, so to speak, and you have circumcision, let me tell you something, that doesn't mean anything. Because the people who are uncircumcised that do the law are better than the people who are circumcised and don't. Remember, religion and godliness is not, a, not external, it's what you are inside. And so now he turns in chapter 3, he asks the question, what advantage then does the Jew have? He's just finished roasting the Jews. He's just finished basically condemning them, saying, you guys are actually worse off than everybody else because you have the Word of God, you know what God wants, and you don't do it. And that actually makes you worse than the people who don't have it. Because at least, you know, you have God's knowledge. In fact, he says, you boast in that. You make a boast that you know God's will. You boast in that. You you see yourself as a guide to the blind, a a, a light to those in darkness. You, you're, 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 um, your value that you place on yourself is that you are God's representative. And you see that in the Gospels, don't you? How many times did Christ talk to the Pharisees and they just had this idea that they had the Word of God and that, of course, since Christ wasn't one of them, obviously he was of the devil. We don't know where you're born. We know we're, we know we're children of Abraham. We have a lineage. We're not sure about yours. Where I'm going, you can't come. Oh, you're going to kill yourself? Because obviously we're going to heaven, so that must mean you're going to hell. They prided themselves on this. You ever run into churches that pride themselves on being the only ones that know God's truth? I've had a few of those. There's probably a few within 20 miles of here you could drive to that think they're the only ones going to heaven. They're the first ones that got it right. They're the first group of people that have ever got all of the things that God likes right. So if you go in with the wrong clothes on, obviously you're not a Christian. If you use the wrong Bible version, obviously you're not a Christian. If you don't adhere to all their rules, obviously you're godless. You're Wicked. We are very good at that. All of us are. We like to think of ourselves as better than we really are. And the Jews were very good at this. They, they had prided themselves on this. That was their whole, their whole identity was wrapped up in this. And Paul then asked the question, well, then what advantage? If, if, if that doesn't mean anything, which he just said, your lineage and your circumcision and the rights that you have don't mean anything, what advantage then are you, he says, so you're going to say, well, what advantage there is there to being a Jew? I mean, good night. I mean, it's probably worse for me being a Jew than not. 
What advantage is there to be a Jew? And what is the value of circumcision? I mean, if, I'm, if you're telling me I'm condemned, what good is it to be a Jew? What good is it to get circumcised? I mean, you're just, you just told me that circumcision doesn't mean anything. Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. He said, you know, it's good to be a Jew because the Jews have what? God's word. God gave them the law. One of the great advantages of being a Jew is that you had God's law. God had revealed it to you. Now, they had completely distorted it, right? But they had it. Advantage there is pariso. It means to have an advantage, to be one up. You have an advantage because you've been entrusted. This is an interesting word. It means to deposit, to put on a deposit. If I entrust you with something, what am I doing? And usually whatever I'm depositing is what? Valuable or invaluable? Valuable. Okay, it's entrusting. It's, it's to be, the Jews were entrusted. All right, and it's, the, the active form of this is to believe. It's, it's something like root word, pastuo. All right, what we the pastuo is faith, right? But in a passive form, what's a passive form? The ball hit me. I hit the ball active. I hit myself with the ball middle. The ball hit me passive. In the passive form, in in the in in the the language there, to have a passive trust is to be entrusted with. You're giving faith to someone. I'm having faith in this person to take care of this. That's what it, the idea there. If I entrust, you know, something to Dan, I'm saying I I have faith that Dan will take care of that for me. I have faith in him doing that. Paul's saying God entrusted you with the words of God. And the word there, oracles, is it's a direct saying or it's a, it's used in secular Greek to refer to the oracles from God's, the, the words that God speaks. These are the very words of God. God gave them his word. Where did, where, who had the scripture? Where did the scriptures come from? Who, who wrote the scriptures down? Jewish people. Moses. The only one you could say possibly wasn't a Jew was Job. It was very early on. Time back in time of Abraham, but other than that, I mean, all every the entire whole Old Testament was Jewish. The Jewish prophets, the Jewish priests. God gave them his words. He entrusted it to them. Now, unfortunately, his entrusting, when he entrusted the words to them, what did they do with those? Well, they didn't obey it, right? I mean, I can trust you with something, but they didn't do what God wanted them to do. They had distorted it. They had twisted it over the years. They had missed the point. But Paul's saying, as a Jew, you had it. That's big. That's a big advantage. You had it. Think about that. I mean, stop and think about this. When you pick up your Bible, God entrusted you with that. He made a deposit. 
Paul in one of the pastoral epistles says, I know whom I have believed and persuaded. He's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. And Paul talks again in the pastoral epistles to Timothy that God's entrusted you with a gift. And I think one of the things here is, you know, if you think about it, a little parallel track, is our life, our resources, everything is a stewardship. When you think of stewardship, what do you think of? Take care. care of, but mostly take care of what? We have stewardship campaigns. What's a stewardship campaign? Raise money, right? We think of money. Stewardship is money. But I think if you look closely at the scripture, stewardship is way more than just your money. Is it, is it your money? Sure it is. God has given each one of us a certain sum of money. How are we managing it? I remember talking to somebody many years ago, wanting to know, well, what's wrong with gambling? I said, why am I going to take the money that God's entrusted me with and throw it to the wind? It's a chance. Really? I mean, that should be enough right there to stop you from buying lottery tickets. But I think there's other stewardship. Uh, what about your time? That's why when you asked what the stewardship means, I said to manage. I was, I was already thinking far broader than mere money. Mm -hmm. Most people just focus on the money. That's true. But it's more than that. It's your time. What are you doing? Every day you get up, you have a certain set of opportunities ahead of you. What are you doing with those? There's another one thing you can have stewardship of. That's your energy, your, what you can do, right? You have, every one of us has certain abilities. How are we managing those? Not all of us are gifted to do the same kinds of things, but all of us have ability and talent. How are we managing that for the Lord? Or are we managing just for ourselves? I'll tell you another one that we don't talk about, our health. Our health. Within reason, now look, I understand that someday something's not going to work on me and I'm going to die. I get that. But when I buy a car, why do I keep the oil changed? I want to last as long as I can, right? I know someday it's not going to work. I get that. But until then, I want it to work well for me. Take care of yourself within reason, within boundaries. Try to, you know, eat the right stuff, get appropriate exercise, you know, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I've, there, I, unfortunately, this past couple of years, I've known several people I used to go to church with here that were my age that ate themselves to death. Literally, they ate themselves to death. You know, and it's like, why'd you do that? You know, I'm... My health is a stewardship. I mean, don't go nutsy on this. You know, you could be a, a nutso on it. That's not what we're talking about. But take care of yourself. Take care of your resources, your time, your energy, your talent, your financial resources. Because that is a stewardship that God's going to someday say, how would you manage what I gave you? Yeah. He didn't tell Adam, you know, kick back, eat your pina coladas, whatever they had, drank back then or whatever, and just, you know, enjoy the 
enjoy the sunsets. No, he put him to work, right? Manage it. Throughout the Bible, there's a premium based on good stewardship and management. A lot of Christ's parables, interestingly, a lot of the um, subject matter of Christ's parables have to do with money and management and stewardship, believe it or not. Parable of the talents, parable of the pounds, parable of the unjust steward, a lot of those. How are you managing it? It does. Go look at his parables. Go look at the things he says. Um, Sermon on the Mount. Lay up for yourself treasure where? In heaven. Now, he's not dissing the fact that you manage what you have now. That's not where your treasure should be because that's where your heart will be. He says um, it's a stewardship. So if God's given you something and entrusted something to you, what do you need to do? You need to manage that. God's entrusted his truth to me. He's going to hold me accountable for how I manage that truth. That's what he says in, in the pastorals, right? Timothy, God's entrusted truth to you. Now, make sure you do a good job with that truth. Make sure you manage it well, because someday God is going to ask, how'd you manage it? I remember there, and I, I looked this up actually, and I did a recent blog post where it talks about an ancient statue they found. Um, one of the, and it was the, I got to get the get it right now. It's like the son or the grandson of Zeus, supposedly. It's one of their Greek gods. And uh, when you look at this thing, he has this massive lock of hair on the front of his face, and then nothing, his back of his head is bald, completely bald. And there's a writing on like, who are you? You know, what is your name and all of that. And he says, basically, it's my name is Opportunity. He said, why do you have a large lock of hair on the front of your head? Well, so when I come by, people can grab it and hang on. And why is your back ball? Well, if I go by, there's nothing to hang on to. You, you missed it. The whole idea there is, and there's actually a statue they have um, of this. And the idea there is opportunity, when it comes to you, you need to take advantage of it. Because if you don't, you may not get another shot at it, right? God told Israel, go into the promised land. They didn't do it. What happened? Forty years later, they got to go in. All right? Be a good steward. You know, take advantage of the opportunities that God gives you. If you have the ability to do something and you have the opportunity and the inclination, do it. Why am I taking biblical languages? Because it's there. It's, I have the opportunity. I have the time. I have the resources. Explain to me why I shouldn't do it. God says And why did it take 40 years? You, you sometimes, sometimes you don't get a second chance. Yeah, remember that. Sometimes you don't get a second chance. 
If someone says, well, I'm almost persuaded to be a Christian, I'll wait till tomorrow. You may not have a tomorrow. Yeah. Here's, here's the actual um, reading from that statue. I'll read this. The ancient Greeks had a god called Kairos. Kairos means time, right? The youngest son of Zeus. The statue of Kairos depicted a running figure with a large lock of hair on his forehead with a bald head on his back. He's carrying a razor as he's seen running, and an inscription gives us what his likeness means. And it goes to Q&A. Who was the sculptor and where did he come from? From Sycion, I guess it is. What was his name? Lysippus. And who are you? I'm the time that controls all things. Why do you stand on tiptoe? I'm running. Why do you have a pair of wings on your feet? I fly with the wind. Why do you have a razor in your right hand? As a reminder for people that I'm sharper than any sharp edge. Why do you have a tuft of hair over your face? So he who meets me can take me by the hair. And why in heaven's name is the back of your head bald? Because after I pass by on my winged feet, nobody can catch me anymore, even if they wish they could. Um, God entrusted Israel with his words. They didn't do a very good job of taking care of them. In fact, you see this in the stewardship of the vineyard, the, the, the evil vineyard, evil vine dressers, remember? Man, man goes and he puts out this vineyard and he lends it out to vine dressers and he comes in his time to get it and they treat him evilly and they finally kill his son, so what's he do? He goes and he destroys them all and lends his vineyard to someone who will do what? Give him his fruit. What's he saying to the Israel, to the Pharisees and the religious leaders? God gave you and trusted you. God gave you his word. He entrusted you with it. And what did you do with it? You killed the prophets and now you're going to kill the son. He's going to come in, wipe you guys out, and give it to somebody else who will manage it for him. They were entrusted with the oracles of God. And then he asked, well, what if some were unfaithful? What do you mean by that? Well, some, God gave them the word of God, and what, were, what, what, what happened? What did some of them do? They didn't take, they didn't, they were unfaithful to it. They didn't do it. Yeah. It says their unfaithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God. If God is faithful to you and you're unfaithful, does that void God's faithfulness? No, it doesn't. The word there, meganoito, may it never be. God forbid. No way, Jose. Not in a million years. Pick one. Impossible. See, the idea there is that they said, well, if the Israelites were unfaithful, does that mean that God's word meant was faithful? Did, did it not do what it was supposed to do? The answer is no, it doesn't, right? If you have the word of God and you don't do it, does that, is that a smirch on God? No, it's your problem, right? It's not God's problem. Yeah, I mean, God, God is faithful. God is... It says, if we deny him, will he deny us? God is faithful. What does it mean to be faithful? When we say God is faithful, what do we mean? He will never fail. 
Um, in the Old Testament, there's a word kesed in the Psalms. It's a word that we don't really have in our language. Kesed is God's loving kindness, his unfailing loving kindness to his people. Stop and think about that. You know, our, our best intentions, you know, given a point will fail. God's word will never fail. God will never fail. Because he can't fail. Because he can't lie. God is faithful. Just because you're unfaithful doesn't mean God is not faithful. It doesn't nullify it. It doesn't um, render it inoperative of no effect. Just in case anybody thought I was off the off my rocker, uh, Deuteronomy chapter one verse two. It takes eleven days to travel from Horeb to Kadesh Barnea, following the Mount Seir route, mm -hmm. and then it goes on in verse three to talk about how it took forty years. Yep. Chapter 1. Yeah, I mean, you look at the map, it doesn't take them that long, but they had to wander for 40 years because of unbelief. By the way, what is unbelief? Define unbelief. Well, what is belief? Yeah, believing God and acting upon it. What is unbelief? And why don't you do it? You don't want to. There it is. That's the it's not because you, you're, you're, you're wondering if it's, if it's true or not. See, there's a difference between doubt and unbelief. Doubt says, you know, I, I want to believe. I want to believe. Unbelief says, I know what the dad, dad is. I know you're the word of, I know you're the son of God. I know you are, but I don't, I'm not going to believe it. It's a decision. Isn't that just crazy? It is. It's crazy. I mean, that's what Christ, what, why did the Pharisees die in unbelief? Because Christ is there healing the dead, raising the sick, doing miracle after miracle, power over the demons, everything else, and their conclusion is, I must be of the devil. We will not believe. We will not believe. It's like a, it's like a kid sitting in his dirty diaper. I will not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> unbelief. Yeah, unbelief is a refusal to believe. So you leave Egypt, you watch God completely decimate the most powerful country of that time, bring them to economic ruin, so much so it took them years to recover. You go through the Red Sea on dry land, you watch him destroy the armies of the Egyptians. You see Mount Horeb, you see God on the mountain, you see the lightning, the thunder, everything else. You know, he brought us out here to kill us. That's why. There wasn't enough graves in Egypt. That's what it is. He brought us out here so that we could die in the wilderness and our bones. That's what we, that's what. You sit there and say, hello. Anybody home? But what is it? It's unbelief. I will not believe. In spite of the evidence, I will not believe. And that's one of the things, you know, just as an aside, one of the things that we need to do it's constantly remind us of God's faithfulness in our lives. Because if not, we forget. How often in Psalms did David say, How have I cast down on my soul? Oh, I'm bad. And they said, Well, now wait a minute. I remember when God delivered me from this king and that king. I remember when, you know, I remember when I beat up the lion. I remember that. And then the bear. And then, you know, and after a while, he says, What, you know, 
What am I worried about? He pulled himself out. Why did he pull himself out? He remembered God's faithfulness in the past. God is faithful. So their, their unfaithfulness, their lack of faithfulness doesn't at all nullify God's law. I'm trying to decipher the difference between unbelief and disbelief. Disbelief is, I sort of want to believe, but it's not a decision. Unbelief is more of a decision. Unbelief is a decision saying, in spite of the evidence, I won't believe it. Yeah, it's like, it's like somebody can look at the universe and say, you know, it looks like there's a creator, but I will not believe that. It's, unbelief has more of a decision behind it than I would like to believe, I'm just not sure. Does disintegration have a meaning for that? What's that? Disintegration? No. 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 It's just the idea that Unbelief is a decision. Unbelief is saying, I've got the evidence before me. I've got everything, but I'm not going to believe that. It could be any number of reasons, but I'm just not going to believe it. I'm not going to act upon it. Yeah, disbelief, there's some doubt. Yeah, there's some doubt. There's By the way, do, do, we all, do we all struggle with a little time, a little bit of doubt in us? <laughs> yeah, if you don't, you're lying to me. We all do. But we believe God, right? See, that's the difference. Unbelief is a decision. Unbelief says, I don't care what the evidence is, I'm not going to believe it. And that's what happened to the Israelites, right? They saw all of the evidence. You could sit there and list it to them. They said, I won't believe that. And the difference is, I, I can't get my head around the whole thing. I'm going to believe it. You, you go with the information you have. And what is great faith? I mean, how much did Rahab know about God? Not much. But she believed him. She believed it. Let God be true, though, and everyone were a liar, as is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you're judged. That's a quote out of Psalm 51.4. What is Psalm 51? Remember the background of Psalm 51? David Bathsheba. What is David saying about God's judgments in Psalm 51? Your judgments are right. See, here, here, our problem today is we live in a day where truth and justice is distorted. Right? Distorted. I mean, you, you, look, you look at, you know, you, you've got things happening in our society and, and everybody makes an opinion on that regardless of any information they have, regardless of evidence, and it's all colored by, you know, your, it could be your political suasion, it could be your background, it could be your race or nationality, it could be this or that or that or this, or everything is, is impinging on trying to knock justice off of where it should be. There's all these winds coming at it. Defund the police. Defund the police, all of that stuff. All, all, all the nuttiness we see out there. So no longer is it, did this actually happen or not? But what, admit it, what political spin, what king, what, you know, there's all these winds that come on this thing. God's not like that. That's what, that's what Paul's saying here when he's quoting David. God's not like that. God does not care what your socioeconomic status is. God doesn't care. I mean, look out there. Look at some of the people.
people that probably, if you did what they did, you'd be in jail, but because they're rich, they're walking around free. We see that all of the time. God doesn't care what your color is. He doesn't care what your nationality is. He's not interested in your gender. The answer is, did you do it? Did you not? That's it. That's, there's not, no other factor comes into play. God's judgments are not swayed by anything. Ours are. All of our judgments are. You know, we try to do our best, and, and I think we do in our country, try to do our best to get to justice. We, we do our best at it. Do we always succeed at it? Probably not. I do think O.J. did it. <laughs> but, but the point is, even down here, as best as we try, sometimes we get the wrong answer. God doesn't get the wrong answer. They say that in the army. When you're a private in the military, they used to ask you a question, the drill sergeant. Whatever you say, it was the wrong answer. And they would tell you, wrong answer, private. Yeah. God, and, and that's what God is saying here, that, that our judgments are twisted. So when we try to sit in judgment on God's decisions, what answers are we going to get? Wrong answer, private. Wrong answer. Because God's answers are right. By definition, what God does is right. By definition, what God does is just. God doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't screw up. He doesn't, his, his justice is not swayed by any factor other than true and false. Right and wrong, you did it or you didn't. Ours is colored by everything else. And we see that. By what we want. By what we want or some political end or some desired outcome or name it, any number of things. It's all, it's all, ours is, is twisted. God's isn't. David said to the Lord, when you judge me, you're right. See, we like to bring in, yeah, but. I know I was speeding officer, but uh, McDonald's coffee burned me and it's their fault that I or I had a hostess Twinkie and it was on a sugar overload and that's why I committed this crime. They get off. No. No. Why is it? I, I like what, one of the memes I see on, on, um, on you know, every once in a while I get a Facebook meme that just like, yeah, that, that's, man, you know, that's more true than you like to think of it as, you know. So if you want to know the difference between um, what it was in the 50s and today, in the 50s, the automotive thing had showed you how to change your oil. Today, it's warning you not to drink the battery acid. Yeah. Stop and think about that. I remember, you know, you go buy a lawnmower and it says, this lawnmower is not to be used to trim, you know, Somebody picked up a lawnmower and tried to trim their hedges and cut their fingers off and sued the lawnmower manufacturer for not warning them that that could happen. But see, we live in a, we live in a world of perverted justice. And there's a part of us that, that longs for true justice to be served. And we see that in the, in the minor prophets. Go read the minor prophets. And again, 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 God says you've, your, your justice is perverted. God, God's justice is true. And Paul is saying, listen, don't ever 
sit in judgment and say, well, God's not just, or God's not right, or God's unfaithful. Listen, God is right in all of his judgments. A hundred percent. The problem is not him. The problem is you. Yeah. And someday somebody's going to stand before God and they're not going to be able to wiggle their way out of it. God's going to have the goods on them. And their mouth is going to be stopped. Kind of like that comic book. They were long and short, and one of them was like Holy Ghost. And then when he died, he got he, he got killed in a war. Mm -hmm. And he went up to heaven, and Jesus represented him, and God said, get away from me, I never knew you. And then you see him, he kicked him out of heaven, and he's like this, falling down and yeah. down. Yeah, no, you, God's true. And then he says in verse 5, well, here, okay, because another one say, well, you know, well, what if my unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God? I mean, how do I know how God is righteous? Well, by a contra contrast, right? So technically, I'm doing God a favor by being bad so I can show everybody how good he is. So if that's it, is, is God unrighteous to inflict wrath on me? So if my unrighteousness shows God's righteousness, is God wrong in judging me for that? Because after all, I'm just showing how good he is. <clears throat> they are. Do you follow what his argument is? My sin is making God look good when he forgives me. Therefore, how can he judge me for that? Because I'm actually doing him a favor by making him look good. It's, it's, it's significantly flawed. You know, if I do this and God forgives me, it makes him look good, so I'll just keep doing it. Because it makes God look good. That grace may abound. God forbid. He says, I speak in human way. By no means, again, may genoite, no way, no, not, not in a million years, no, impossible. If my life... But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? Through my sin, through my wickedness, if God gets glory in, in revealing his righteousness through my unrighteousness as contrast, why does he still judge me? Because his judgments are true. His judgments are true. There are people that think, well, you know, my sin makes God look good, therefore my sin is a good thing. That's a twisted way to look at things. That's backwards. He's righteous. True. Our, now, it, technically, does my sin display God's graciousness? Yeah. yeah, it does, right? When I get to heaven and God says, you know, they say, well, you know, tell us about your rights. Well, look at Schaefer there. I redeemed him. Wow, I guess you're right, you know. Yeah. We're God's trophies, right? God, we're objects of God's mercy. God can display to the universe his grace and that he saved me. That displays his glory, does it not? It displays his grace, his mercy, his love, his kindness. Would it perhaps be a better question to ask 
with my confessed sin display God's righteousness? Actually, it does. Because what did happen when Achan got caught? What did Joshua say? Give glory to God, confess your sin. Why? Now, how, now look, did, how did it turn out for Achan and his family? What happened to them? Well, remember, Achan is the one that stole the Babylonian garment and the gold in Jericho. And the next town they got beat up, Israel got beat up, and Joshua said, what's going on? And God said, what are you doing in here? They're sinning in the camp. Go take care of it. They found Achan, who had stolen this. And Joshua tells to Achan, confess, give glory to God and confess your sin. Why? Because what happened to Achan afterwards? Well, they took him, his family, his cattle, his eye, everything, his tent, everything, took it down to the valley of Achor, stoned him, killed everybody, and burned it with fire, and put a big heap of rocks on it. Now, that was a bad day for Achan and his family. But, but, but it's interesting because Joshua said, confess your sin and give glory to God. In what sense? Everybody needs to know, Achan, that you're getting exactly what you deserve. It's not, God's not being, God is not having a bad hair day here. See, we think God's having a bad hair day when he judges people. God, no. When you confess your sin, what are you saying about God's justice? <clears throat> he's righteous, he's right. By the way, the word for confessing in the Greek is homo legeo. Homo, same, legeo to say. To say the same thing as. When you confess your sin, you're saying the same thing about your sin that God says about it. You're not saying, yeah, but, you know, Lord, I had a hostess Twinkie this morning. I couldn't help myself. Doesn't cut it. Yeah, but I had a bad, you know, I had a bad upbringing. Nope, doesn't cut it. Yeah, but my environment. Nope, 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 doesn't cut it. You sin. Yes or no? That's the point. And what Paul is saying here is that you can't make the argument that if my sin makes God look good, it's not fair for him to judge me because technically I'm making him look good. Doesn't work that way. And, you know, the question there is then, why not do evil that good may come? As some slanderously charges with saying. People are saying, well, Paul is just, he's throwing out the law, just saying, well, go ahead and sin because it'll make God look good. When God forgives me, it makes God look good, therefore I'll just send it up and make God look really good when he, sends me, when he forgives me. That's presuming on God's character. By the way, that's what it means to take God's name in vain. Taking God's name in vain is not using certain words, although that could be part of it. That's not exempt. That's not exempt, but it's presuming on God's character. It doesn't matter what I do because my wife loves me and she'll forgive me. You're presuming on what? That relationship. When you say, well, it doesn't matter what I do because God loves me and forgive me anyways. Now, wait a minute. You're presuming on... Now, will God forgive you if you're a believer? Yes, but does that mean you want to go do it? I hope not. You show me someone who says, I, it doesn't matter if I sin because God will forgive me. I'm saying, I wonder if they're really a Christian. Do you really want to be doing that? If you love someone, do you really want to be offending them because they'll forgive you anyways? Why? Why would you want to do that? That is crazy talk. 
And what? Yeah, I think he got that one right. Yep. He got that one right. No. No. Now, now look, let's understand. Are there factors that cause us to sin? When you get tired, when you have... Yeah, but that doesn't excuse it. There's a difference. There's a difference. Here's the thing. Biblically, there's a difference between understanding why somebody does something and what they do but that doesn't excuse their actions. We live in a world where that is supposedly supposed to excuse their actions. Well, I think that was That's the problem. The Pharisees when, well, I'm not like that guy. Yeah. 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 I mean, quite honestly, you know, I, you know, if I'm tired and it's a long day and the cop pulls me over, I might snap at him. Is there a reason I did that? Yeah, I'm tired, I don't, you know, whatever. Does it make it right? No. It doesn't excuse me. But we have this mentality that, oh, that excuses your behavior. We're going to let you off on your behavior because of these mitigating factors. God doesn't operate like that. No. 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 You're not going to do that. You're not going to do that. You know? Yeah. I mean... And, and that's why, you know, one of, the, one of the great problems we have today in, in our society in America and in the world is we have a lot of bad behavior and sinful ideas and that being excused by other factors and nobody's owning up to the fact that, hey, this is sin. Yes. Yes. All right? We're, 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 we're getting rid of the right and wrong and saying, you know, we're trying to bring in external factors of race, religion, upbringing, socioeconomic status, on and on and on and on, name them all. I mean, just all kinds of things. And supposedly that's supposed to just let people have bad behavior because, well, you know, they had a rough go of it. No, it, we understand maybe why they do that, but that does not excuse what they did. And that's our problem. Once you start, here's the problem. Once you start going down that path, what do you do about, what do you do with the number one thing What's the number one thing you need to know in order to be saved? The starting point of being saved. What do you got to get? You are a sinner. If you don't get that, you can't be saved. If, if your sin is not your fault, there is no gospel. If, you're, if, you're, if your actions, if your sin is because of environmental factors or upbringing or anything else, you're not owning up to it. There's no hope for you. So their belief is in vain. It is. If you don't, if you, the starting point of being a believer of sin, of the gospel is that I am a sinner. It's my fault. It's not the fault of my mom and dad. It's not my genetic code. It's not my environment. It's not my upbringing. It's me. Now, all those other things can factor in. We get that. We understand that. That's not going to help you. 
I got to say, I am a sinner. I need God's forgiveness. And God says, I'm there for you. Someone said, God can forgive all your sins, but none of your excuses. And yet what we do is we live in a world of excuses. Bad behavior, well, it doesn't matter because, you know, they had a rough day of it. No, it doesn't work. God, God, what's it say? Let God be true. Every other man a liar. Because God defines truth. He's the definition of that. God can still be knowledge of right and wrong. Yep. Don't make excuses. Doesn't work. All right, we'll pick up with verse 9. Father, thank you for this day and for your word and for being taught from it. And help us to put into practice these things and just remember and remind ourselves that we're at fault. Your justice is right. Your judgments are right. Your assessment of our lives is right. Don't let us make excuses for our sin, but rather let us face them and confess them so that we might find mercy because you're there. You, you will forgive us our sins, but not if we come with all of our excuses. And again, thank you for this day and for the service to come in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.